back, everyone, to the Let's Talk podcast. On today's episode, we speak with an Italian Renaissance professor here at Clemson University. Me and Tim got to learn some really cool things about past society and the arts. You're never going to find a rule that says, okay, in this position you do what Napoleon did, or, yeah. you know, uh, Sacco. What, what's important to learn is that every one of those situations had a background that got you there. Uh, and depending on what the background was, in a moment of decision, some options were available, others were precluded. Hope all of you enjoy. Have a great year. Welcome back, everyone, to the Let's Talk podcast. I'm your co-host, Kalen Williams. And I'm your other co-host, Timothy Edwards. And today we are joined by Mr. Thomas Keene, a professor of history here at Clemson University, and his area of expertise is the Italian Renaissance, is that correct? Correct. And we would absolutely just love to hear kind of what brought you to this area, what made you want to teach history, and then just kind of what that process of teaching looks like. Mm. Well, those are different times and places. What made me want to teach it was my own undergrad experience in in learning history at a college level, Mm -hmm. uh, which certainly wasn't the memorized book high school way of doing things. Absolutely. That made the subject interesting and that made me want to go into it further. Uh, so then I went to graduate school and aimed at this kind of career. Like I said, I came here in 1981, uh, lucky to get a job at that point to study U.S. economic history. You know, times weren't fun. Yeah. Uh, at least there was inflation, there was unemployment. That's maybe especially so in academia. So to score something, on the other hand, I've enjoyed it. You know, all those years, it's 38 years. Yes, sir. There have been a lot of interesting things that have gone here, a lot of things that have changed. Uh, You saw that when you saw that it says chemistry over the door, and we haven't been a chemistry building since 19... I can never get this straight. It was either 48 or 52. There was a fire in the building just before school started. Wow. And the old alums told me, yeah, the rumor was that, that freshmen set the fire so they didn't have to take chemistry. Um, <laughs> so that was it, it was just a stupid rumor. That's one way to get out of class, you know, I guess. They quickly fixed it up, but then they built the building over there, which became chemistry until, uh, well, I think the one they're in now was open in 1990. So until that point, um, that was chemistry building next door. Awesome. Awesome. So in this building fell to history, philosophy, religion. Um, this was all remodeled. Um, well, we got booted out in the middle of 1999. We came back in, in the spring, really, of 2003. Uh, this was stripped down to the walls. Wow. You know, these, these brick walls the were all that was here. Uh, look like those images you get of uh, you know, some European city after the war where there's just the walls and everything got blown away. Yeah. Um, they stripped it down to the walls, but it's very interesting brickwork. It's good. Absolutely. And totally rejiggered the insides of this and set us up. Um, so we've been in here 16 years, um, enjoying much more comfortable teaching surroundings, to put them mildly. Yeah. You know, um, as you can see by this furniture, one of the biggest things that's changed for our majors is there's a place to hang around the building. Yeah. You know, you got a class at one point and then you have another one less than two hours later and you want to schlep off to eat or something. You can sit in one of these chairs, you know, pick up your email, chat with your buddies, read a book, you 
do any number of things to stay around. And that helps talking to each other, to professors around here and all that. Absolutely, making those connections. Yeah, which wasn't true in yeah. the old situation yeah. by any sense. And you know, you could probably walk around campus, interview others in other departments and other kind of buildings, and get their sense of what the spatial environment has and has not done yeah. uh, for their department, their major. So for us, this has worked nicely. Yeah, that's awesome. So if you could give a little bit about what does the teaching of the Italian Renaissance, because to me that was like I love how. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the Dark Ages were just like a Catholic dark time, and then the Italian Renaissance essentially was kind of, would you say that was, I mean, Renaissance meaning birth? Well, the first thing I'll tell my class is that the whole idea of Renaissance is a little overblown self-promotion. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And taken up by people centuries later, uh, uh, sort of with their own agendas. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the things I'll do right away, you know, but I'll also point out if there's a kernel of truth to this, it's that there were some people at that time who talked in terms, maybe less actually of rebirth, which is what Renaissance usually means, than they talked in terms of bringing back to light, which is a different metaphor. It doesn't assume you've died and need to be revived, um, which is more a sense of a historic change. It died, it came back, but, you know, receded into the shadows and and reemerged. Absolutely, it's a different, you know. But what they wanted to do was write eloquent Latin. Yeah. Absolutely, which is not the burning desire of most anyone these days that I can tell. <laughs> um, except that that excited a, a set of inquiries and ultimately involved uh, people who had power. Yeah, and that made the classics. In education and the classics, the basis for education for centuries. Yeah, you were not an educated person if you couldn't you know, make allusions to Caesar or yeah. uh, Greek plays or something. Yeah, absolutely. So, would you say, like, from that, you were saying it was more about it wasn't about self-promotion, or you're saying it was? It was, it was about it. Okay, I was yeah. making sure. And so, do you think kind of because I can kind of see that actually happening in today's time, do you think that's dangerous, or do you think that will, in the long run, help us out? That depends who's doing, who's doing it. it. I guess. You know, uh, you know, anyone can come up with an idea of rebirth. What do they apply it to? Exactly. You know, um, you know, just off recent reading, I was reminded that, for instance, Mussolini used those notions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hitler's appealing to Germans in the aftermath of a defeat in World War One. You know, in speaking in somewhat similar terms, well, there's something like rebirth in the hands of a right-wing political viewpoint. So it can end up that way. On the other hand, it can end up being, and a lot of people who study it think it's a fairly liberal idea, that it's not supposedly clerical, it's not the church, it's not um, pre-existing political entities like kings and dukes, that it's maybe more uh, cities in the study, and certainly in Italy, focuses on places like Venice and Florence. Yeah, I have, uh, like, I have a question, like as your studies have um, progressed, like as you've learned more about the Italian Renaissance and things like that, how has your view on it changed? Like 
when you first start studying it or learning about it in your undergrad studies versus, or like I'm assuming your undergrad studies. Versus, I did have a course on Renaissance as an undergrad. Right, yeah. for, versus like up until I guess now where you're, you know, passing along that information, but I'm guessing, you know, and still probably learning more and more about it. Mm-hmm. Like how does your viewpoint on the whole thing changed, I guess? As um, a, it's just more subtle. The more you, you learn about it, the more you find yourself saying, what's well, such and such, but, or, but then there's also. Um, people, for instance, used to make a lot of Lorenzo de' Medici in Florence, called Lorenzo the Magnificent, which actually was a term applied to him even in his own day and age. And he seemed to be a patron of the arts and all, you know, in literature, and those were good things. Yeah. And there were others who came up and said, the guy's a tyrant. You know, he's, he's going around what you could call the constitution and the laws of the city. He's definitely dipping his hands in the public treasury at various points, um, you know, uh, making up Florence's foreign policy, marrying his kids into ruling houses, which would end up with the Medici becoming dukes several generations later and down a different family branch. Um, and both are true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, that, that's the interesting issue. You, you've seen scholars swing from one way to the other, but when you come back to it, all of those things are out there. You know, They're not fake news. They're real things you have to grapple with. Now, that doesn't mean you don't disagree with colleagues about what a particular event may mean and how you contextualize it. Yeah, right. Um, but there are things you have to definitely face. Yeah, I was thinking, you were even saying it was more, earlier you were saying it wasn't so much about individuals, it was more about like the cities and stuff. Would you say that, that was something that later on, or I'm trying to believe, the Renaissance, where did the Greeks kind of fit in? Because they were very focused on the cities. They each had a different... Yeah, the difference was that the Greek, well, Greek material comes to the West in the period in sort of two bursts. Florence brings a couple of Greek people to the city, actually wants them to teach Greek, and they bring, obviously, some Greek texts with them. So at least an elite of these humanists who were very concerned with Latin is starting to learn Greek and even translating some elements from Greek into good Latin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, you get the the moment when Constantinople falls in 1453, and this produces an exodus of scholars bringing books with them. Yeah. Uh, there are even points at which uh, Venetians and others are later trading with the Turks who don't necessarily need, you know, and they're happy to sell off and let this stuff go. And so these things come in. This is when the Vatican, for instance, starts to acquire an incredible collection of Greek manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, um, I haven't seen, there are points which some people might say, well, Florence is sort of like Athens. Yeah. You know. But I haven't seen it pursued, you know, in in point by point comparison. Yeah. So not the way in which when you get to the ancient world, Plutarch's parallel lives set up. Here's a Greek, here's a Roman, yeah. and how these things look similar. You know, nothing of that sort. Would you say it's more if they were like more mature? Would you say then? Mm, loaded term. I wouldn't say. Yeah. Uh, mature. They had other things yeah. they were pursuing. Yeah. You know. um, 
the, it's not really until the 19th century that you start seeing these, oh, the Greeks invented democracy and for Palestine. And that really almost begins when the Greeks are trying to break away from the Turks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the teen, teens and 20s. Yeah. Um, again, arises in a different circumstance you know, for different purposes. Do you view, because, well, I'll just ask your opinion, do you view Alexandria as one of the greatest cities in mankind's history? Uh, it certainly was at the point at which it was the undeniable epicenter of cultural yeah. developments and had the, the great library of materials and all of that. Um, it remains important for centuries. You kind of forget it's still sort of the dominant center of yeah. Muslim Egypt. Yeah. Uh, centuries later. Yeah. You know. I was just going to say, yeah. I always, I really believe that we should look as humanity, like better days are ahead, or else you're going to fall behind now. But it really seems to me like I cannot view Alexandria not in a positive light. I always view it as kind of a direction that the world should be going. What do you kind of think about that? And that's another loaded question, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it, you, you know, when you're, you're looking at what seemingly is an idea of bringing people from a broad set of areas, trading in a couple different languages, at the least, um, and having them meet as sort of open-minded uh, exchanges of views and information. Uh, we'd like to think that maybe in, in the great scheme of things, that's what the internet is supposed to be. On the other hand, the internet is also a bunch of people trying to hack and get your information or disinform you or, you know. Um, and there were certainly those portions of things in Alexandria where they're pursuing an agenda yeah. you know, that's, that's going to be out there. Yeah. Yeah, because it seems, I, I see what you mean there with the comparison, because it was like they were pulling books, especially I was just reading with Ptolemy, the first and second. They were pulling all this information from around the world to get every bit of knowledge they could. And it seems like that's what the Internet started out as. But mm. yeah, kind of like you say, it's almost become about money. You can't even buy a book now. It used to be they would, books were very vital to them. And now we just kind of see books as something you can just buy online. Well, and put it on your Kindle or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm still so, into real books. I, no, I completely oh, understand. Yeah, <laughs> you should. Yes. You know, well, those are, you know, uh, the biggest single change there, in fact, is that you produce a book instead of a scroll. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, the book is actually much easier. It's sort of one of the things computers give you, right? The ease of moving and searching. Yeah. And there's an ease in a book because you can flip pages back and forth. You don't even have to click. It just works. Your fingers will do it. Yeah. Uh, and that was certainly an advantage against the scroll. Yeah. You know, and most people have the wrong view of scrolls. They think of it this way. They put this way. Yeah. You know, you know, but then you, how do you paginate? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the earliest writing did not. You forget this sort of stuff. How simple we, we used to think. The earliest writing in most of those manuscripts didn't have a space between words or sentences. So imagine reading that. Yeah. You know, just take any any line of a, of text you've got in a computer and eliminate all the spaces and try reading yeah. what you've got and where that would break up. And sometimes where you separate what you think is a word is not the right place, and you change the meaning because you've slid into a different word. It all depends on what letters follow in what order. And that makes complete translate. Yeah. Yeah. And then that you know, there are other things. You know, you have to invent P 
periods and you know, punctuation stops to invent the difference between capital letters and small letters, which you know becomes another thing. Plus, when you were writing on um, parchment, first of all, you're dealing on animal skin, yeah. which is a whole set of treatments that has to go on. Yeah. And some of the ones that are not that well treated, you actually can feel the fuzzy side, the hair side. Yeah. You know, which means the ink doesn't stick too well yeah. either. Uh, and then when you're doing all of that by hand, you've got a layout. You can't just start writing. It's not like you pulled a sheet out of a notebook and start writing your grocery list or something. You've got yeah. to figure out what you want to do, lay the whole thing out carefully, and then you're going to abbreviate. <coughs> so you don't have to always have more fancy books who play the whole thing out. And they make it elaborate, you know, initialing and illustration. Other ones, not so much, but you're going to abbreviate, which there are various ways in which a little swirl across the top of a couple letters stands in for five or six letters, depending on. Wow. And of course, that means the next person who comes along when that book a century or two later is starting to fall apart and they decide they want to make a copy of it, they may totally misread this thing. Yeah. And of course, you know, this has led to, I'm not, not a field I'm a specialist in, but obviously the most copied book, and the most transmitted book, was scripture. And in all those copyings and recopyings, you know, mistakes enter in, deliberately or not, yeah. but they enter in, which then leads to a lot of discussion about, well, what is the text, the presumption that there was an original text. Yeah. yeah. And... They might not have been. It may have been a succession of school exercises, you know, that comes up. Yeah. Um, a whole lot of things. It's an interesting, like I said, it's not something I became yeah. intimately involved with, but all the stuff about manuscripts and how you put them together and how things are done and the traditions of making marginal comments and interlinear comments and all the rest. Um, it's a fascinating field. It, it's funny because uh, you bring that up because a lot of people don't take into account the human error aspect of it. That you know the copying and rewriting and the, the like. Some people might not understand uh, what this means, so they'll transcribe it into their own meaning and things. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I have a question back for you. Um, going back to the Renaissance, who would you say is like someone who's very underrated that you've learned about in the Renaissance that doesn't not necessarily receive the credit, but who just is unknown and they were great like uh like nikola tesla of the 20th century he was absolutely amazing but mm -hmm. for some reason not a lot of people know about him uh yeah even though he won versus edison yeah uh to me the biggest difference was there were some humanists who again there's a lot of self-promoting that goes on a lot of self-description and said they were fixated on eloquent classical Latin. But in their day and age, 14th to 15th century, the most important intellectuals at that time were the people in the universities, because you did have universities, and of course the first ones were in Italy, and they were based on the study above all of law, though medicine and theology were also university subjects. Um, and so there were those humanists, Petrarch was famous for this, it sort of denigrated these lawyers especially because they didn't write 
you know, good classical Latin. They didn't pay attention. They, they were dealing with legal rules that they saw as enduring as opposed to things that come in and out of use. Um, that's what they're supposed to do. They're, they're lawyers. Um, now, I won't say they were unknown. They were known. Uh, some of them were handsomely paid in terms of the time, especially if they were an important legal scholar in a place like Bologna or Padua really wanted them on their faculty. But those are the guys that I've come, partly because of what it is I do otherwise, um, I've come to appreciate how much real influence they had, because whatever a humanist may have been doing and trying to piece together Plato or Cicero or something of that sort, uh, these guys in law schools had real cases put in front of them, were asked to reason their way to what the solution to this issue should be, uh, conferred with others. Sometimes they issue multiple opinions on, you know, it's, that just got me. It's, it's incredibly um, precise and difficult work. And yes, sure, they don't write eloquently, you know. Go read a legal document. And tell me it reads like Shakespeare. It ain't gonna happen, right? Uh, you know, just read the warranty of a product and think, what idiot wrote language like that? Well, of yeah. course, it's trying to be legally precise and all of that sort of stuff. It's important that attorneys can write that. Yeah. So it became not just so many words on a page. It became actually they had to make it their own and relate it into the into real life. They had to to relate it. They had to cover. Um, uh, unforeseen circumstances in yeah. various ways, and, and um, you know, and they're doing this with sort of three main sources of law in front of them in any one case. The biggest source of law is the Roman law, yeah. which means stuff that was compiled basically by Justinian in the course of the sixth century. It became what legal education was about. You went to classes, and they read you. That's what the word lecture means. It's a reading. They read you. Uh, pieces of this text, working it in order, yeah. and then would make comments and connections to other parts of the text. And so that's how you learn this. Secondly, was canon law, which of course developed closely off that. We have the church's law, which gets into the issues particular to the church, like rules regarding the clergy, but also because of the sense of the sacraments, the church is very active uh, with regard to marriage law and with regard to probating of wills. Well, that's marriage and death, yeah. you know. And the baptism gives an inf give them an, an interest in the other end of life too. So the church has you know very important rules that modify certain things. For instance, the church is the one that basically pushed the idea that a mother can be a perfectly adequate guardian to her children, whereas Roman law was always had to be men. So, um, okay. and then the third source of law you're dealing with in any one case is local law, yeah. which is often deliberately devised to set up rules that that change. The Roman or canon law rules because they want to, you know, and then then there's things that come up that aren't covered by any of the three, and here's your attorney. Yeah. You know, trying to figure out how to make sense of this. Yeah. Even if he's been brought into the case because one side wants him to concoct an argument in their favor. Yeah. Um, there are those who interestingly argue that attorney then has to be more thorough and more honest in his approach because he has to convince the other guys. Or at least withstand the arguments the other side might make. I was just about to say, so um, how would they judge that then exactly? Because, I mean, you could, uh, the Roman law is not, I'm not 
I'm guessing it's not as easy as you're a Roman citizen, so you did this, so you're going under Roman law. You could be a Roman citizen in the church, I'm guessing. Like, how would they base off, I mean, not necessarily a crime, but how would they base off, okay, this set of people had these laws apply to them and these laws don't apply to them, or I don't, I don't know how they would well, judge they, that. They say those are issues of jurisdiction um, or standing, uh, which are issues that apply in cases nowadays. Was it a lot about their financial status too? Some of it would be, but most of those things in law don't technically say, you know, you're a citizen if you have so much money. Exactly. I mean, the, the usual definitions of citizenship is you were born of parents. Yeah. Who were citizens, uh, which has more to you know who your parents were, not where they were when you were born. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are the abilities to allow people to move into towns and become citizens, or it, in many cities they might kind of make them wait. You know, you come in, buy a house, pay taxes, etc., and maybe your son can hold office. You know, which the, the more complete expression of citizenship. Those kinds of things went on. You know. the, there were also plenty of rules that would attempt to keep real office holding and power in the hands of a narrower elite, uh, you know, as opposed to the So the, the classic case of that is um, Venice, where they had um, a group of patricians, and these were the ones who were entitled to be in the, the uh, Casio Maggiore, and then they had the others in the town called the Cittadini, the citizens. They couldn't be in that major council. They couldn't hold the offices and legal positions that were appointed out of that you know, committee structure that set up. But they would be merchants, they would be uh, notaries, would help you record the business, um, you know, vitally involved. In this, yeah. They're Venetian. You know. And then you've got the foreigners. Place like Venice, there are entire groups of them from different areas. Sort of probably so that you know, one portion of Venice is a place called the Fondaco dei Tedeschi. It's the German neighborhood. Yeah, you know, German is the Venetians understood it. And since Austria is not that far away now, you, you know, there were plenty of German-speaking people there. Oh wow! Do you have any more questions? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say real quick, how important do you think it is that we learn from the mistakes? and also the good decisions that people have made in the past and we apply them to our future, how important? Well, you're never, uh, you're never gonna find a rule that says, okay, in this position you do what Napoleon did, or, yeah. you know, uh, what What's important to learn is that every one of those situations had a background mm-hmm. that got you there. Uh, and depending on what the background was, in a moment of decision, some options were available, others were precluded, um, and sometimes it's just plain accidents that make something work. Yeah. Um, and to be aware of all of those things. Yeah, in, in your life, you may you know, go possibly be ruler of a big, important country and be yeah. able to sit there and decide, am I going to push this nasty button? Uh, but you will have decisions in your life about who to marry, what career to follow, maybe where to live, uh, who to be friends with, who maybe to turn away from because there's bad ideas now or something like that. Yeah. Those are all decisions that at some point 
again, don't pull a book off the shelf and say, I'm going to see what you know, yeah. so-and-so did in this kind of situation. But you're aware of all the issues and nuances that go on. Uh, there's a context to you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's Excellent. Great. Um, I really love it. Yeah, let's just make one last thing. That's great because... Um, I've never heard it put that way. Some people think that we have to apply these um, history, you know, uh, knowledge, I guess, like knowledge from the past in this big fashion. Otherwise, you can't apply it. But you can apply it in your day-to-day. I mean, you you really can. Well, it depends what you make of it. Look, one of the big issues going on in the world now, at least the corner of the world, is perplexed by Brexit. Yeah. Right? A whole lot of the people who voted to leave the European Union did so with a sense of Britain and its history. And they would express as, oh, well, we stood on our own in World War II, we can stand on our own here. They never stood on their own in World War II. But that's the way they see it, and they voted accordingly. So you can bring your understanding of the past into things like that, yeah. and be accurate with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this country has been more perplexed about one event than any other. Civil War, yeah. right? Okay. How many different understandings revolve around that? Okay. You get all these people, you know, oh, it was for states' rights. No, it's about slavery. You know, I think anyone who gets near it says it had to be about slavery. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, you get these arguments. What's that damn flag mean? Okay. You know? What's your sense of history behind that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing, the American Historical Association is on record one issue, one fact, one fact only, so this cannot be denied, this one fact. There's tons of facts, right? Yes. One fact that can't be denied. You know what it is? No idea. Holocaust. Mm. You have people who deny even that, right? Or offer a different explanation of it. Yeah. Or, you know, convoluted explanation. But above all, deny it. Right? And at that point, you know, this was in the... 80s, I believe, was the AHA said, okay, we're going to have to define one fact. You can't call yourself a real historian if you deny this. Wow. That popped up in the news just recently. I forget who it was that lost a job or whatever for making a comment insinuating that there was no Holocaust. I recommend they go to the Washington, D.C., because that's where I went. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are those, obviously, those are the, the key moments, you know. History really matters. Right. You know, what your view is, what the views of everyone else you're interacting with matters. You know, and of course, far too often, too few do any real search into it to find out well what really went on, what really happened. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? Well, yeah, I could talk to you for a lot longer yeah, if you had the time. <laughs> if you had the time, because no. the more you go in depth, the more questions I have. Yeah, so. it's, it's a joy of history. That's you want to say why I got into it, kept going these kinds of things come up. Again, we've talked about things that had nothing to do with the Renaissance. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not directly what I'm going to go to my office and start reading. Yeah. But, you know, it is a part of, well, we all share it. I share it with the students in here on a daily basis, whatever it is that comes up. Um, and it's fascinating because of it. Yes, sir. Thank well, you very much for your time, sir. greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, All right. I'm your co-host, Timothy Edwards. I hope you all enjoy. I'm your co-host, Kendall Lewis. Please join us back on the next one. Thank you.
we carry, then it's about to be. Lit.